Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Creator Talks, the writer-artist interview show. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. On today's episode, I have editor-in-chief of Skybound Entertainment, Sean Makowitz. Sean is also the writer of a series coming out, Gasolina, on September 20th. And his artist is Nico Walter. Do you like crime stories? Do you like stories about drug cartels and drug lords? Are you following the Netflix series Narcos? Well, this might be up your alley. But remember, this is a Skybound Entertainment imprint, and there is horror as well. So if you're a fan of all that and horror, this is the book for you. And we're going to hear about it from Sean himself. Now, as this is Sean's first appearance on the show, we're going to learn a bit about his background, his education, and his work experience. He did some work for DC. He did some work for Harlequin Books. And we're going to learn about how that experience prepared him to be editor-in-chief of Skybound and to be a writer. Also, during the interview, I will mention that I have a written interview with the artist, Nico Walter. He was not available for an audio interview, but I do have a written interview. That'll be up on my website, creatortalks.com, the day that this episode also drops as an audio podcast. So look for that as well. I'll remind you at the end of the show. Plus, I have a special announcement about next week's guests and Baltimore City Comic Con. So without further ado, let's get on with my conversation with Sean Makowitz, editor-in-chief of Skybound Entertainment and the writer of Gasolina, coming out on September 20th from Skybound Entertainment Image Comics. Here now on Creator Talks. Sean, welcome to Creator Talks. Hey, thank you for having me. Sean, since this is your first visit to the show, um, what I'll do is just go through some of your education and training that brought you to the position that you're in now, uh, EIC at Skybound. This is not a job interview, you know, so I'm not going to run through your resume. It's boring, boring, but there are things that I'm sure you've picked up along the way that have been very helpful to you in your position and in your success. So that's what I'm trying to get to. You started studying at NYU to be a playwright, and I know a lot of people get to comics through different ways. And uh, was there anything from that educational experience at NYU as a playwright that has helped you still to this day as an editor and as a writer? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. That's uh, that's really kind of where my foundation of storytelling started. Um, I, I never was uh, growing up like super into plays or theater. It was something I, I enjoyed um, and had done some school productions. But uh, when I was in high school, I, I kind of locked onto a couple playwrights. Uh, I think Sam Shepard was kind of the first one that really really kind of opened my eyes up to what the theater was like. So about midway through uh, college, I kind of made the switch to go into dramatic writing. Um, and NYU has a, has a great program and studied screenplays and playwriting and really kind of locked into the playwriting thing and mostly discovering th- character through dialogue and action. And uh, I think it kind of really helped me in my writing today and, and crafting stories the right way. Absolutely. Yeah, I guess with that kind of background, it's good for everyone to have some kind of structure or fundamentals to really do the job well, rather than just kind of, you know, learning on your own and going into something. I think even at that time, Marvel was going, it was around, you know, 2001, Marvel was kind of pulling a lot of writers uh, from theater in the local New York scene, like Roberto Aguirre Sacasa. And you know, I got a couple of classmates that have kind of gone on and had much greater success, like for Marvel, like TV and film. So it's, you know, it's, I guess it's not as unusual. It's just that you probably just don't hear about it as much. Now, your first job out of school was with Harlequin Romance, which is you know, a major publisher, but it probably wasn't 
your first choice, I would think, but how difficult was it to land that first job out of school? Because people don't realize, I think, coming out of school, how hard it is. You know, there's no guarantees. There's no, okay, well, you got your degree, you're in. How long did it take? Well, how much effort was there for you and how difficult was it to get out there and get your first job? Well, yeah, I mean, I was going to be a big shot playwright. Uh, playwriting was going was gonna to feed me. No, I mean, actually, it wasn't even my first job, but yeah, like it was my first salary job, and that took almost two years to get. I had, you know, some other publishing gigs. I worked for a nonprofit. Um, I was unemployed for a while, which was, you know, horrible and, and scary. And so once I, I got this, I was actually working part time. Well, I was working freelance for an architectural firm, and I was I was applying to publishing jobs. You know, they offered me a, a salary that was not high, but for someone that had experienced unemployment for almost six months, uh, it was it paid the rent, it allowed me to eat. And once I got into Harlequin, I realized, you know, with my goal wanting to get into comics, that the way that they published and the way that their their fandom interacted with their writers, uh, it was had a lot in common with, with comic books. And so my my goal, hopefully, um, was once I, I left Harlequin, was to communicate that to you know people that would hire me. And ultimately, I was successful. But uh, yeah, it was a it was a great experience, a training ground on how publishing works, how to talk with authors, how to look for new talent, how to keep schedules. Um, yeah, it was it was it was kind of a it was a nice experience to to look back on. I would think learning about fan interaction, especially the big fan interaction that Harlequin had, would have been very helpful to you, especially today with the importance of social media to get the word out there about someone's project. Yeah, and that was you know it was different. That was kind of pre pre-Twitter. Um, so a lot of it, you know, is you could look online, but people actually sending in, in letters, even the, I mean, the author base was largely since it was, there was actually open submissions at Harlequin. So, you know, I'd be reviewing 500 to 800 inquiry, like query letters and, and manuscripts a year, which is a huge amount. And sometimes, you know, you're lucky if you find one or two authors a year out of that, that slush pile. But you had a lot of people that were fans of Harlequin that grew up reading them and aspired to write them, which is kind of, you know, I think you see a lot of that in, in comics as well. Speaking of comics, after Harlequin, you went to D.C., and that was around the New 52 era when that kicked off. And I'd like to know what are some of the best things about working at D.C. that you still apply today and some of the limitations that you are freed of. And, you know, I would think one thing easily would be there's fewer layers to get approval for things. Yeah. You yeah. know, I mean, in a more open organization where, you know, DC's been around so long, there's a lot of different layers, editors. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, starting there actually came in through the uh, Collected Editions. Uh, it was a small group of about, I think there was five or six of us headed up by Bob Harris um, at the time. And I think just being, you know, your, your first your first month there, you're just amazed at how, how you're at this company that you never thought you'd be working at. And every Wednesday, they give you a, a pile of books of every comic that comes out that day. And it feels very fresh and new and exciting. Um, and there's a real legacy and tradition there. I remember working with, uh, you know, on the collected editions, you're doing a lot of research and making sure the credits are right for a lot of older books that actual published versions in the, you know, the 50s and 60s didn't ha always have the correct people that were on them, whether it was people doing work for her under different names. Um, so Paul Levitz actually invited me up to his office and he had Julie Schwartz's like original handwritten editorial notes. And I'd have to cross-reference those with the table of contents. And like, I didn't have an appreciation for that stuff going into the job. And I think being exposed to all that material and that legacy was super exciting to me as I edited like these huge phone book showcases um, and kind of poured over art by like Gil Kane, definitely jumped up on my list of favorite artists. So that was that was really interesting. 
I, mean, I think the, the, the largest downside is you're working for a corporation that has the machinery was there. There wasn't there's no way someone comes in and kind of changes that, uh, at least immediately or even it takes it takes years going from there, which you know employed. I don't know, probably 100 people. Uh, I'm just guessing that at least 100 people to Skybound, which at the time I joined had five people. It was a larger degree of immediacy. And also just by the virtue of how busy um, and productive Robert Kirkman and David Alpert, my two bosses are and the, the heads of Skybound, like I had to take a large portion of that work on myself and kind of make those decisions and, and get their approval when needed. But a lot of it is sort of uh this is your comic book line to run. Like you get our feedback when needed, but otherwise like you really kind of need to get this up and going and, and make it your own, which, you know, it took me, it took me a little while to do. Well, it must be a lot of fun to work now with a publisher where there's more freedom. It's more nimble. So you can make changes more quickly versus a bigger organization. Although there's less support in some ways, you know, know, with a big organization, you have that structure with a lot of layers that kind of, you feel more support, but on the same time, like you said, making change, you know, it can be difficult because there's a culture involved. But where you are now, there are so many different genres you can work with and explore. Yeah, I mean, we definitely, you know, miss some stuff. Uh, you know, we actually, we work with, with Image. We're published through Image, and Image uh, gives us a lot of resources um, that we rely on. But, you know, DC at the time had three or four guys that were just calling retailers every day and doing retailer relations and hitting them to new books and kind of getting in their ear. And we, you know, we don't have that. Um, we definitely have retailer support and we talk to as many as we can, but having just people dedicated, well, that's their job. And that's a lot of it. You know, they had a marketing department and a live events department. And we have a lot of people, at least in the early going, that would take on a lot of those roles. Uh, now we're we have about 50 people and that's still spread across film, TV, interactive. So we have a lot of different departments. I don't know. It's I mean, there, it's you almost can't even compare the two companies any longer uh, since we've grown so far beyond our, our roots as a comic book and merchandise uh, company. Well, you've probably had plenty of pitches about zombies and superheroes, and you probably don't need more of that right now at Skybound. I mean, if there's a good one, of course, but you're looking to explore other genres. Um, with a slight twist, you're not trying to look to reinvent something completely. It still has to be familiar to the reader enough, but yet different in some way. Is there a favorite genre of yours? <laughs> uh, I mean, I always crime. Crime is sort of like my my comfort food. Um, usually, crime mixed with with other genres always works. But yeah, you're absolutely right about about superheroes and zombies. That's kind of like we don't have many hard and fast rules, but what people can pitch, except no zombies and no superheroes. I mean, people still pitch me superhero stuff, and I I, I like reading it from time to time. But there's so little room to reinvent that genre that going outside that always works. I mean, I, I have a soft spot right now, kind of what I tell people. And it's, it's hard to find the right books, but like I'd love to find a romance book or a book with more romantic elements uh, and also like a sports book that's more grounded, less about the outcome of winning or losing a game, but more about sort of the people that are engaged in these competitions um, are kind of like super interesting to me and passion projects. But, you know, you also have to balance that against what people want to read and what retailers are able to support these days. So that's why you kind of see a lot of fantasy and sci-fi, but I think we do a pretty good job of hopefully each book having its own, its own niche. What did you read growing up? I mean, were there certain comics that you gravitated towards as a youngster? Yeah. I mean, I don't, I, I was at the right time for, you know, the early nineties, X-Men, X-Force relaunches. That stuff really hooked me. Infinity Gauntlet has always been a favorite of mine. Um, and that kind of expanded off into, you know, the founding of Image, 
and, and all those guys. I mean, Jim Lee was was my guy at that time. But over the years, each one of those guys has kind of taken a different place for me. And then probably late high school and then into college, like a lot of the, the Vertigo books are what kept me locked in to reading comics, whether it was, you know, 100 Bullets or Preacher, Transmetropolitan, uh, Dead Enders by Ed Brubaker. It was all that stuff that just kept me kept me really energized by what, what was going on. And now, moving from EIC to writer, you have your own comic book coming out, Gasolina. Yeah. And we're dealing with a newlywed couple here and a drug cartel in Mexico and horror. Now, uh, most of the first issues about the crime element, but rest assured, readers, there is a horror element in it. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's coming. And the newlyweds are running from something, uh, Randy and Amalia. Anything you can tell us about them without spoiling the story uh, about them a little more background and about the cartel that they're involved with the mystery of, of how they met and, and the circumstances of how they kind of wound up on the wrong side of the road will eventually be told i think i like starting kind of in a, in a place where they're they're good they're about to celebrate their uh first anniversary so they have a good degree of familiarity you don't know how long they knew each other before getting married i'd probably say it was it was less it was a little bit more impulsive but yeah i just really wanted to focus on two people in these these early days um, that had, I think because of this mysterious past, like relied on and trusted one another more than you'd think. I think if you've been through like the hard things that they've been through and obviously they'd dealt with criminal elements in Mexico, that kind of establishes a bond quicker between two individ individuals. But the, the cartel they're about to face is Los Carritos. They're new, uh, not much is known about them except their tactics are a lot more savage and inhumane than kind of any of the other cartels, which is saying something if you know anything about the, the real life history of cartels. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, the first arc really kind of explores what this newlywed couple does when they face off against this kind of complete X factor. And like you said, the first issue said is predominantly crime. But I think over the course of the first five issues, which is sort of the first first arc, the, the scale starts sliding more and more towards horror until I think we find a, a pretty good balance by the end. Well, your artist, Nico Walter, yeah. is incredible. You know, there will be a written interview on creatorstalks.com the same day that this interview goes out with Nico Walter. You really believed in this guy because <laughs> you, you – I read that you used part of your Christmas bonus check to pay for the first few pages just to see if it would be a good fit. They actually paid for the entire first issue. Oh, I mean, the whole issue. Jeez. We added um, – I think we added – at least four pages after the original version was done. Uh, that was based on notes I had gotten back from my bosses. But uh, yeah, no, I mean, Nico is incredible. I think he's he's young and he's still growing, but uh, his storytelling isn't like anyone else I've seen. I mean, he definitely reminds me of some people. I think like Sean Phillips, who I've always loved his art. He definitely fits in that. And some of his early pages, like, you know, I work with this guy, Dan Pinocean, who's an incredible storyteller. And there was a, a sense of that. I mean, I don't know. He just, he's... He reminds me of other people, but also is distinctly himself um, and kind of really plays with um, contrast a lot. And his shot selection and the panels he chooses is always completely different from what I think in my head. But that's good. He always elevates it and, and makes the pages a lot more interesting than I ever could have dreamed of. And can you tell me a bit about the rest of the team? Yeah, Matt Lopez is uh, – he was – I had never worked with Matt before this. He came – I was looking for artists a couple years ago and I always ask people who I work with or try to work with recommendations. And uh, I had spoken with Matt Wilson who colors uh, The Wicked and the Vine and he's like, you know, I usually don't recommend people but Matt's work is is pretty special and I think that he's got room to grow. So we kind of – we're looking for artists and I think Nico is a, 
I think he's a little tough to, to color because of that contrast. And Matt kind of came in and did two test pages, which is the first two pages of the book. And just really wowed us, and uh, it just made a lot of sense to to run with him. No, yeah, it caught my eye because I just looking at the the yellows and the reds and the burning fire, and it really looks wonderful. Yeah, that his he definitely excels at fire, and like you, <laughs> yeah. the, the more colors you work with, you kind of realize like I don't know, like just like the tricks that they in their arsenal and uh, that. So I, the only thing I've had to push him on is making the blood like nice and wet and, and slick, and uh, I think he's starting to get to my taste, but. Uh, <laughs> I think that comes from working on Invincible that has like very wet, wet blood. And I just, I just, uh, an aesthetic choice that I thought works well with the book, um, especially when you're dealing with some, some other flatter tones that mm-hmm. the blood will really pop in and flow. And tell me what it's like working with your editor, Ariel. <laughs> um, it's, it's, it's a dream come true. <laughs> but Ariel's my, my assistant. And, um, we talk about all of the books in Skybound. She reads the scripts. Uh, same thing with, um, the other editor on my team, John Moisen. And uh, I really was looking for a project that she could step onto and, and make her own and kind of learn how to edit a book from the, the top to the bottom. And I just really enjoyed talking story with her. And I know that she'd be honest with me despite be also being her boss. But that's not, as I told her in the beginning, you know, I, I edit Robert's titles. And so having to send notes to your boss or, or tell your boss to get work done was not a, a new skill and probably a useful skill to have. So um, it's it's been... It's been really great. So this is coming out on 920, first issue. Yeah. And uh, it's been a good year for Image. You guys have made a lot of accomplishments. Skybound's made a lot of accomplishments. What are some of the ones that really stand out for you for this year for Skybound? Yeah, we've actually, I mean, Skybound itself, I can't, you know, it's actually Image's 25th anniversary, which is astounding that not only Image's made has lasted for 25 years, um, considering the number of changes it's been through and uh, but they also get to launch a book as part of its 25th anniversary. But Skybound itself has launched six titles, or will have by the end of the year. I think early, in the early going, uh, Extremity by Daniel Warren Johnson uh, was a book that we had a lot of faith in and I think has been rewarded. I think he's an incredible writer, artist, and that's been that's been a ton of – I mean, it's not a fun book to read all the time. Uh, it deals with very heavy themes. About, it's like a meditation on revenge. Um, we actually call it uh, – when Miyazaki meets Mad Max to kind of give you that level of, you know, visuals, but also how hardcore it gets. And then um, Redneck has been a huge success for us as well by Donnie Cates and Lissandro Starin and Dee Conniff. I mean, that's a, it's a book about a family of vampires that live in Texas and make barbecue and what happens when their kind of history catches up to them and the intolerance uh, in their surrounding community. So that's been, that's been a ton of fun, but I mean, Donnie's had a, a year. I haven't quite seen any, comic book writer have in quite some time um, between that book and God Country and uh, his future work on Marvel stuff. It's uh, it's really quite special. Well, it's amazing how far Skybound and Image has come, especially Image in 25 years from where they started. Because to me now it's like Marvel used to be the house of ideas. It's all new ideas all the time. But the only difference I see really is that it's not a big connected universe that you can pick up any series. It's not connected and enjoy it. You don't feel like you have to buy all these other books that are associated just to get the full story. And there's just so much variety in the line. Yeah, I mean, I think at this point, yeah, there's so there's so many different stories. I think there's something for everyone. Um, I think part of the difficulty in promoting that is, you know, Marvel and DC can rely on that connectivity to drum up easy uh, publicity and marketing and, and kind of manufacture events. Whereas, you know, on all the image books and Skybound books, the creator and, and the rest of the, you know, the creative team has to kind of 
figure out new ways to market it because it's a brand new thing and you basically have to reinvent the wheel every time. We're lucky that we have a platform and have, you know, an entire company to give our creators a, a larger platform and, and reach probably outside, hopefully reach outside the, the audience that would just come upon them casually. Yeah. It's not, I mean, you know, this is my, my fifth year working at Skybound and uh, every, every month is different, Never mind every year. So like I said, we launched six books this year. I think we'll have a, a larger slate next year. Cause we always, we're always, I mean, I already know what we'll be releasing next year. There's still room to kind of plug new titles in, but you know, we have eight active titles, um, by end of the year, it'll be closer to like 10 to 12. And then we always have another almost 20 in development at any given time. Yeah. I don't know. It's uh, it's pretty wild. I love being part of the history of image at the, at this point. And I guess for 2018, the details of what's, what'll be coming up, we'll probably hear at New York comic con. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a good place. We, we may be announcing, uh, a, a title or two there. You know, the, the trick is always to keep a well curated line where each title, um, is equally important outside of the walking dead, of course, which is the most important at any given time. That's also, you know, you want to make sure that fans feel compelled that they can pick up any title and don't need to pick up everything, but also always have stuff once they're in between issues to to sample something else and know that a lot of attention and talent was poured into each one for them to kind of rely, you know, uh, invest in, in the Skybound storytelling as a company. Oh, one thing I want to point out about Skybound and Image that is one of the best things about the company, the way they run the business. And I've heard fans grouse about this, about other companies, how you don't have to wait so long from the single issues to the trade yeah, to get the collection. Because what if you come in late? Like what if you've heard all the great buzz, the book sold out, now what do you do? You're going right. to search for back issues, you're going to pay an arm and a leg or these, you know, like nine ninety nine starter volume one, you can get caught up. And then you, I would think you'd get more readers for the next arc that way. But that's a great thing that uh, Image has really pioneered. Yeah, I mean, that's always the hope is that, uh, you know, they read the first volume and they want the story so quickly afterwards that they jump onto the single issues. You know, it's, it's a balance of, of maintaining those readerships if, if things tilt too heavily towards trades. And sometimes that's a financial model that's just unsustainable because you're you're paying for six issues and then have to wait. But it's something that Skybound, you know, since we have so many different revenue streams coming in from all around that we can take bigger risks on titles and allow them to run longer. I think, you know, currently all, all our ongoing series last, you know, 18 to 20 issues. I mean, there's a baseline for low level of sales, but we want to make sure that people that read it get the full story. It's a challenge, but we like doing it. Well, Sean, I just have a few questions I ask all my guests just to get to know more about you as a person. Yeah. My first, what do you like to do for rest and relaxation? <laughs> I like going to the movies. Since I actually moved out to LA, I like doing a little bit more, you know, walking, going down. I mean, I'm a, my, my, my wife and I are big beach people, so we like going to the beach. But since we had our, our son, uh, it's more taking walks or runs down by the beach. So, yeah, if it's not too hot, we're kind of in the middle of a heat wave here, but uh, not too hot. Definitely going down to the beach and, and cracking a book and uh, just kind of relaxing that way. You know, I don't know how much streaming television you get a chance to watch, but given that you like crime – and you've written Gasolina. Have you seen on Netflix Narcos? No, I've actually stayed away from Narcos. It might mix in with what you're writing subconsciously. Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, I've definitely done a lot of research and kind of read about a lot of those histories. I'm not I'm not so uh, up on myself that I think I, I know more than them. I just kind of, yeah, I, I, I want to make sure that I was telling my own story. And I think that part of it is most of the times when you see TV and films like Sicario, which I, was fantastic. 
is that they focus on you know government agencies, soldiers, cops, kind of taking down these these drug leaders. And I really wanted to focus on the people kind of caught up on the ground level of caught in the crossfire and seeing if they could do anything to to fight back. I would imagine if you have a great deal of knowledge of the history and the actual events, it would be really tough to watch a Hollywood version because you know a lot of names and places have been changed. That agent is not meeting with the prime minister or the president. That's, <laughs> there's no way. You know, that's great for the story, but they, they would not be sitting in that chair. Yeah, I, I would think it'd be tough. The more you know, you would just kind of be like, that's nah, not right. That's nah, not right. And you'd have a hard time enjoying it. Yeah, I try not to. I mean, I think a lot of the the first time I took a, a screenwriting course, the, the teacher was like, I'm basically going to rewire your brain so you'll no longer enjoy uh, movies. <laughs> Which is like it's it is kind of true. I think your your bar for what's uh, what you enjoy, you can kind of see the seams a little bit more, or at least you know, able to critique it. So, I I still am able to enjoy stuff. Uh, currently, I'm I'm loving Rick and Morty because I think that that's just like <laughs> that show is just so insane that there's no way anyone could could figure that out or be ahead of that, and it's still really really satisfying. Now, if you were stuck on a deserted island and you only had one book with you, what would that book be? I don't know, a really long one. <laughs> um, God, I don't know. I, I try to think of what my, my favorite book is. I'm not sure I have a favorite book. I think, I'm sorry if that's a disappointing answer. It's hard for people. No, I understand. I mean, I guess it would probably be a book that's been on my shelf for a while that I've just never had the time to, to sit down and read. I've had this ever since I left Harlequin, which was well over a decade ago, I bought this book called Power Broker, which is a history of Robert Moses who was a very influential man that basically helped shape the landscape of Manhattan, uh, oversaw Central Park and a lot of Long Island. So I've always wanted to read that. So that's that's like 1,200 pages. So that would last me a, a month or two there. And do you have a beverage of choice when you're resting and relaxing? <laughs> sure. Uh, I mean, I love I love beer and I love a, a good bourbon. That, those are kind of my, my go-tos when I relax and watch a, watch a movie. Is there a beer preference? I'm not asking for a brand name, of course. You know, I'm not, <laughs> not advertising here, but you know, like for myself, um, I tend to like IPAs. When, yeah. I, when I have nothing else planned, I'm going to do no, no heavy equipment. I'm going to be operating or anything like that. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I gravitate towards those actually. Yeah, no, I mean, I, you know, living in in California, uh, they have a huge affinity for the West Coast IPA. I'm uh, I'm originally from out Massachusetts, and I was out there for vacation and. There's a, a huge upswing in uh, New England style IPAs, so yeah, no, definitely, I, I love that. I like I like everything. I want to. It depends what kind of mood I'm in. Um, lately, been drinking a little bit more sours, and since it's summertime, it's more like wheat beers, just for uh, to be refreshing. Because sometimes those IPAs go straight to your head. Oh yeah, especially in the heat. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, Sean, thanks so much. Anything else you want to share with us before we go? No, no, I appreciate it. I appreciate all the support that uh, people have been showing Skybound since I've been here. Yeah, if they have any questions, they can find me on Twitter at, at Sean Makowitz or um, interesting Skybound books at, at skybound.com. All right, and that's, so that's Gasolina, number one, on September 20th. Make sure you reserve your copy before they're all gone. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, people always talk about the importance of pre-ordering, but I think oh, being yeah. on this, this side of stuff, it, it really is. Um, you know, if you want to support creators that you that you really enjoy reading and, and want the next book please do that that that's an automatic sale and uh it's just uh, it's good karma absolutely sean thank you so much for being on creative talks hi everyone christopher here next week i will have guests appearing on the show who will have panels at baltimore comic-con and i will also be at baltimore comic-con next weekend 
I will be hosting a panel, Women Creators Discuss the Evolving Comic Book Industry. That will be on Saturday from 2.45 to 3.45 p.m. in room 347-348. I have a very diverse panel with different levels of experience in the comic book industry. Joining me will be Meredith Finch, the creator and writer of Rose, being published by Image Comics. Erica Schultz, who is the writer of Charmed for Dynamite Entertainment. And also the writer of her own series, M3. Artist Aletha Martinez will be joining me. She worked on such books as Iron Man and X-Men. And she will also be on the Black Panther panel on Sunday at 11 a.m. in room 339-342. And finally, last but not least, and not listed in the program for some reason, and I apologize for that. She should have been. Dawn Griffin. She is an artist, and she will have a panel on Friday from 5 to 6 p.m., also in room 347-348, Alien Art with Dawn Griffin. She is part of the Kids Love Comics workshop area, and you should check it out. And if you have kids, bring them to the con, because there'll be plenty of things for the kids to do. And hey, please join me for Women Creators Discuss the Evolving Comic Book Industry on Saturday, 245 to 345. Look forward to seeing you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of Creator Talks. The podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Podbean, and YouTube. If you like what you hear, please rate and review on iTunes and Stitcher. Don't miss a single episode each Thursday. Subscribe, it's free. A new interview will be available each week, and sometimes there'll be a second, maybe even a third interview that week. You can send me feedback and comment on social media. I can be reached at Creator Talks Pod, that's at Creator Talks Pod on Facebook and Twitter. I'm also available on Instagram, Creator Talks Pod. There I will post pictures while I'm on location, as well as my Saturday Silver Age or Older and Sunday Bronze Age Spotlight comics from my personal collection. Don't forget to visit my website, creatortalks.com. There I have listed the latest episode on the homepage, plus a playlist of all the episodes to date that you can listen to online or download. In addition, on the site, I will be posting my recommended reading picks, as well as written interviews with creators. Also on my YouTube channel are video interviews with creators on location at comic conventions and elsewhere. I know you have a lot of entertainment to choose from and a lot of podcasts to choose from as well. And I thank you for making the time to listen to this one, your best source for comic book writers, artists, and creators. There are more interviews in the works, and you never know who it might be. It is my distinct honor and privilege to speak to these creators and bring you those interviews each week. I'd like to thank my executive co-producer, who makes this possible, Mrs. Calloway. That's all for now. For Creator Talks, I'm Christopher Calloway. Until next time.